This morning, we're going to look at the second luminous mystery, the miracle at the wedding at Cana. The reason we're including meditations on the first two luminous mysteries during a Christmas retreat is because these two events were always traditionally celebrated as part of the Feast of Epiphany. Now, you probably normally associate Epiphany with the visit of the Magi. But in the traditional calendar, the Feast of Epiphany also recalled three events, all three of them epiphanies, those moments where the divinity of Christ and his salvific mission are revealed, the wise men, the baptism of Jesus, and the wedding at Cana. To examine this mystery, I will share with you from a book by Dr. Brant Petrie entitled Jesus the Bridegroom. Because in reading this book, I had a fairly similar experience to the first time I read Scott Hahn's book, A Father Who Keeps His Promises, God's Covenant, Love, and Scripture. In that book, Scott Hahn explores how God's covenant in the idea of family kinship are central ideas to understand the entire Bible, how God progressively created expanding covenants, starting with an individual, then a family, a tribe, a nation, a kingdom, and ultimately the entire world in the church. Well, Dr. Petrie's book, Jesus the Bridegroom, did much the same for me. It gave me a new way to understand the entire Bible, a central key to salvation history, that God's covenant love is one of a marriage to his people. And so we'll look at that and then see how this key can help us unlock a little additional meaning to the only wedding in the New Testament, the wedding at Cana. It's spelled P-I-T-R-E. I hope I say it right. Dr. Brent Petre is a professor of sacred scripture at Notre Dame Seminary in New Orleans. He received his PhD in New Testament and ancient Judaism from the University of Notre Dame in Indiana. He's also married and the father of five, which makes his prodigious output of books even more impressive. In his books, Dr. Petre uses the texts and traditions from first century Judaism to unveil the light and splendor of the New Testament. His desire is that we understand the New Testament in light of the old, to understand the full story. This is something I've heard Bishop Barron emphasize a lot. For example, can you understand the Lord of the Rings trilogy if you only watch the last 20 minutes? Well, sure, you'll know how it ends, but you don't know why Frodo is there and have no idea what he's doing and how it, long it took him to get there and why this ring is so important and the epic journey that took place. Similarly, Bishop Barron says, we have to know the story of salvation history. Only then will we fully understand the climax of the story. As I said, Dr. Petrie uses Jewish sources to help us understand the background Jesus and his disciples would have presupposed because they were all Jewish Christians. A simple example of how the Jewish background and mindset helps us understand the words of Jesus is found in John 3, 
where some of John the Baptist's disciples come to him asking about Jesus' ministry. And John replies, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. What does John mean when he refers to himself as the friend of the bridegroom? Well, in Jewish tradition, the friend of the bridegroom is what we today would call the best man, the one who acts as a public witness to the wedding. But in the Jewish tradition, it was also the job of the best man to bring the bride to the bridegroom. John's task is not to be the center of attention, but rather to lead the bride, to encounter the bridegroom when the time for the wedding has come. Something, of course, John does by calling the people to repentance. And so John is already pointing out out to us to see that Jesus, the Messiah, is a bridegroom. And just as the best man recedes from view at any wedding, John says, he must increase, but I must decrease. So Dr. Petrie examines the entire story of salvation history through that first century Jewish lens, looking at episodes like the Exodus, wedding at Cana, the woman at the well, and even the book of Revelation, to show that the story of the Bible is ultimately about God the bridegroom coming to marry his bride, the people of Israel, and how Jesus is the bridegroom God made flesh, who consummates his marriage with his bride, the church, at the crucifixion. After all, how does the story of salvation history begin? With Adam and Eve, it begins with the first couple, really the first wedding in the book of Genesis. And how does the story end in the book of Revelation? With the wedding supper of the Lamb, the marriage of Christ and the church. And in between the beginning and the conclusion, what's the climax of the story? The crucifixion of Jesus. Now, would a first-century Jew who witnessed the horror and agony of Jesus' crucifixion have thought that this had anything to do with the celebration of a marriage, much less, much less its consummation? Well, that is the ultimate thesis of Dr. Brand Petrie, that Jesus' crucifixion is his wedding day. So before we get to the wedding at Cana, I'll just look at a couple of scripture passages to show us this interpretive key revealing the nuptial love God has for his people, fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And then afterwards, I'll try to look at some implications this has for us and our spiritual lives. Already in the Old Testament, Dr. Petrie argues that from an ancient Jewish perspective, the God who created the universe is a bridegroom. And all of human history is a kind of divine love story. Now, what's the central event of salvation history for the Jewish people? It's the exodus from slavery in Egypt, which culminates with the covenant made on Mount Sinai. 
And those of you who have read Scott Hahn already know how in the Bible a covenant was a sacred family bond between persons, establishing between them a permanent sacred relationship. Exactly the kind of relationship inaugurated in Exodus 24. Taking the book of the covenant, Moses read it aloud to the people who answered, All that the Lord has said we will hear and do. Then he took the blood and splashed it on the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you, according to all these words. Dr. Petrie points out that whenever this event from Exodus is spoken of by the prophets, such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea, they all interpreted what happened there on Mount Sinai as nothing less than a divine wedding. Consider Jeremiah 2. I remember the devotion of your youth, how you loved me as a bride, followed me in the wilderness, in a land unsown. Israel was dedicated to the Lord, the first fruits of the harvest. And Ezekiel 16, I passed by you again and saw that you were now old enough for love. So I spread the corner of my cloak over you to cover your nakedness. I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine. And if that wasn't already clear, the footnote in my New American Bible says that the spread the corner of my cloak refers to one way to acquire a woman in marriage. Perhaps one of the strongest ways the ancient Jewish prophets looked at the God of Israel as their divine bridegroom was the way they described the sins of Israel. They didn't speak of sin as just breaking a law or a rule. They see sin as a betrayal of a relationship, an act of spiritual adultery. As one reads the Old Testament, generation after generation, the descendants of Israel fall prey to the worship of the false gods of their pagan neighbors. The sin of idolatry is ultimately about offering to some creature or created thing the love that is due to God alone, not only as creator but as divine bridegroom. For example, consider the beginning of Hosea. When the Lord began to speak with Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go get for yourself a woman of prostitution and children of prostitution, for the land prostitutes itself, turning away from the Lord. And Jeremiah 3.20, but like a woman faithless to her husband, Thus have you been faithless to me. In some, the prophets tell us how breaking of the covenant is a spiritual infidelity and betrayal. Israel's idolatry is breaking of her marriage vows. But thankfully, the prophets don't end there. Although they recognize the people of Israel be betrayed their divine bridegroom in repeated acts of spiritual adultery, they also proclaim that God does not give up on his bride, but promises to one day forgive her sins by establishing a new marriage covenant with her. And so the prophets proclaim a future marital reconciliation between God and his faithless, faithless bride. Consider Hosea 2. On that day, says the Lord, you shall call me my husband. And you shall never again call me my Baal, the false gods. 
I will remove from her name the names of the Baals. They shall no longer be mentioned by their name. I will make a covenant for them on that day. I will betroth you to me forever. I'll betroth you to me with justice and with judgment, with loyalty and with compassion. I'll betroth you to me with fidelity, and you shall know the Lord. And Jeremiah 31. See, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors, the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. They broke my covenant, though I was their husband, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. And so God promises through the prophets a new covenant that is a marriage covenant, one that is directly tied to the forgiveness of Israel's sins. And very important in each of these prophecies, salvation is not just about the forgiveness of sins. That's only a first step. Salvation is ultimately tied to having a union with God. The bridegroom wants his bride to know him intimately in a spiritual marriage that's fruitful, faithful, and everlasting. Hence, all of human history is a story of divine love, given, betrayed, forgiven, and ultimately renewed in the new covenant brought by Jesus Christ. And in the Jewish tradition, a covenant is always sealed consummated, if you will, through sacrifice and worship. And as we know, this will take place at the crucifixion, that Jesus will unite mankind to God through this act of sacrificial worship. I already, already pointed out how John the Baptist spoke of being the friend of the bridegroom, identifying himself as the best man and Jesus as the bridegroom. But Jesus wasn't married. So where did John the Baptist get this idea? Who is Jesus' bride if John describes himself, if John describes him as the bridegroom? What is John doing when he calls the people to repentance? Well, he's baptizing. Why does he baptize? Well, an important part of a Jewish bride's wedding ceremony was the act of ritual washing with water. It was a kind of baptism that took place before the marriage. So by baptizing, John is preparing the people of Israel to become a bride, a bride for the coming divine wedding through which their sins will be forgiven by Jesus the bridegroom. So a little bit of a long introduction to get now to our meditation on the wedding at Cana. Obviously, as a wedding, it has nuptial imagery, but was not a scene that I had considered as telling us something about Jesus' role as a bridegroom. Yet Brant Petrie says that this sign of Jesus recorded in John chapter 2 is not just about Jesus performing his first public miracle but also about Jesus revealing his identity as the bridegroom Messiah. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. 
Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is, is what to you? What concern is that to you and to me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. We're all familiar with the story. The disciples and Jesus and Mary are attending a wedding in the town of Cana. The wedding feast would go on for several days. And during the course of those days, the wine runs out. But I suspect many Catholics, myself included, would not be able to answer the question, why is this the very first of Jesus' miracles? Obviously, he could have done anything to inaugurate his public ministry. Why not start off raising somebody from the dead? Or curing a blind man? Or casting out a demon? Instead, he provides a miraculous wine. And 180 gallons of it. Which definitely shows he's Catholic, right? But making 180 gallons of fine wine at a Jewish wedding seems an almost odd way to kick off your messianic ministry. Unless he's wanting to reveal not just his miraculous power. He could reveal his miraculous power in any miracle. But he wants to reveal something deep about who he is, his identity. And so again... Dr. Petrie says the key to unlocking this story is found in the Jewish context in which the Jews of the first century were not only awaiting a Messiah, but they were even more awaiting for God to inaugurate what was known as the Messianic banquet that the Messiah would bring. This great banquet of salvation where God would give his people his best wine. The idea comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 25. A beautiful prophecy about a wonderful banquet in which Israel and all the nation would feast on good choice wine. And when God gives them this eschatological wine, this end time wine, this wine like you would expect in heaven, Isaiah says that God is going to take away their sins and destroy death at this time he does this. This finest wine is to be a sign of the time of salvation, the time of the Messiah. So we read Isaiah 25, beginning in verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will provide for all peoples a feast of rich food and choice wines, juicy rich food and pure choice wines. 
On this mountain, he will destroy the veil that veils all peoples, the web that is woven over all nations. He will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces. The reproach of his people he will remove from the whole earth. For the Lord has spoken. On that day, it will be said, indeed, this is our God who looked to him and he saved us. This is the Lord to whom we looked. Let us rejoice and be glad that he has saved us. So going back to the wedding at Cana, it's Mary who says to Jesus, they have no wine. Now, on one level, she's obviously drawing his attention to this particular local problem of running out of wine at a wedding. But on a deeper level, she's signaling to him because she knows who he is as the Messiah. That it's time for him to reveal his identity. It's time for the great messianic banquet. But how does Jesus respond? Woman, what does that mean to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. Rather strange statement, cryptic at best, disrespectful to his mother at worst. I know I could never address my mom as woman and get away with it. Is Jesus overreacting or refusing her implicit request? On a deeper level, Jesus is saying to her, now is not quite the time. We're not quite ready for the great banquet of salvation when I will give that choice wine, that saving wine of salvation. However, in obedience to his mother, he will perform a sign that looks forward to that coming messianic banquet. And so that's what happens. He performs the miracle. He changes the water into wine. And the key comes at the end of the story. The steward of the feast, who's kind of the head waiter and the wedding reception, he tastes the wine and says to the groom, everyone serves the poor wine first, but you have kept the good wine until now. Hearing this would have resonated with a Jewish audience as pointing to Jesus' identity as the bridegroom. Because as the steward obviously knew at a Jewish wedding, unlike many of the American ones, it's the responsibility of the groom, not the bride, to provide the wine for the banquet. So he goes to the groom and says, well, now you're serving the good wine. In either case, whoever pays for the reception these days at weddings, I don't know, are the guests ever asked to bring their own wine? No, of course not. This is the responsibility of the groom. And so even when Mary points out that Jesus is the problem of the wine, she's implicitly recognizing and inviting him to take on his role of being the Jewish bridegroom. Jesus does solve this particular local problem of the wine running out. But simultaneously on a deeper level, he responds to Mary that his hour has not yet come. He provides a good wine now, but the hour is coming when he will provide that saving messianic wine. 
And as you may know, later in John's Gospel, Jesus will use this same term, hour, several times to refer to the moment of his coming passion and death. To cite just a few examples in John chapter 12, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason I have come to this hour. Thus, in his enigmatic response to his mother, Jesus is already making the connection that will be the very thesis of Brant Petrie's book. The moment of Jesus' death on the cross is that hour when Jesus will give the pure wine of salvation Isaiah had foretold, Well, Jesus will provide the messianic wedding feast at that moment of his death on the cross. Because precisely at that moment, he is the bridegroom being wed to his bride, the church. As John says of Jesus before the washing of the feet in chapter 13, before the feast of Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to pass from this world to the Father. He loved his own in the world, and he loved them to the end. Here we note how Jesus' hour begins at the Last Supper, which John describes as a banquet of love. Using very striking language, Jesus the bridegroom celebrates a banquet of love, a wedding banquet. He goes to his passion and death with with a love that is total, self-sacrificial, a love to the end, John says. Yes, Jesus will provide the choice messianic wine. It is his own blood shed for the forgiveness of sins on the cross and also given to us in the Eucharist. However, I must note that this thesis is not something that Dr. Petrie just came up with on his own. The church has always taught the reality of Jesus' identity as the bridegroom and the church herself as his bride. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 796, is quite stunning in how many scriptural references there are to Jesus as the bridegroom and the church as his bride. The unity of Christ and the church is often expressed by the image of a bridegroom and bride. The theme of Christ, the bridegroom of the church, was prepared for by the prophets and announced by John the Baptist. The Lord referred to himself as the bridegroom. The Apostle Paul speaks of the whole church and of each of the faithful members of his body as a bride betrothed to Christ the Lord so as to become one spirit with him. The church is the spotless bride of the spotless lamb. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. He has joined her with himself in an everlasting covenant and never stops caring for her as for his own body. Now, if we had a lot more time, maybe another retreat, I could, there are so many other aspects of the wedding at Cana we didn't get to talk about. For example, you could meditate on how John notes this takes place on the seventh day, which is hearkening us back to Genesis and the seven days of creation. Because he now wants us to see Mary as the new Eve and Christ as the new Adam. 
And thus, when Jesus calls her woman, it can be seen then as a reference to the woman in Genesis 3.15, who will crush the head of the serpent. You could meditate much more about Mary's intercessory role, how she sees this need and brings it to her son. And thus, this story shows how Mary is a mediator who brings to Jesus all of the wants, needs, and sufferings of mankind. And then we should meditate on Mary's last recorded words in the Bible. Her call to join in her own obedience of faith found in her words to the servants. Do whatever he tells you. Just as Mary believed in Jesus from the moment of the announcement by angel Gabriel and responded by saying yes, she now leads others to do the same, to believe and to obey. As this first miracle, Jesus' first sign, enkindles the faith of the disciples. And as I mentioned, we might meditate more on how several of the early fathers held that the miracle of the choice wine has Eucharistic overtones, prefiguring the far greater miracle and how Jesus will change wine into his own precious blood, which inaugurates this new covenant. To conclude, what does this mean for us to say that Jesus truly is the bridegroom, God in the flesh. Does this make a difference for our sacramental and spiritual lives? It does, because it means the entire Christian life bears the mark of the spousal love of Christ for the church. In other words, everyone who is baptized has been incorporated into this marriage relationship, this covenant relationship of love between Christ and his mystical body, the church. So Jesus being the bridegroom is relevant for every single one of us. The catechism says the baptism is a nuptial bath for the Christian. Right? The baptism is what prepares the bride to be wedded to her husband. And so our baptism precedes our participation in the wedding banquet of the Eucharist. And so this teaching can have a powerful impact on the way we see the sacraments. That the sacraments are not just medieval rituals or fraternity initiations in which we become participants in an institution, members of the Catholic Church. No, these are the ways that Jesus pours out his love on his bride. These are the ways he touches his bride by cleansing her from sin and baptism, by making a gift of himself, his body, blood, soul, and divinity to his bride in the Eucharist. After all, that's exactly what a bridegroom does, right? He pours himself out. He gives his life for his bride. He doesn't just give her something, he gives her himself. And so we believe the Mass is the representation of the full, final sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Thus, if the Mass is a supper, 
It's not the Last Supper, but the ultimate supper. This is the foretaste of heaven, a glimpse of glory, a sharing in that mystical and everlasting banquet, the ultimate supper of heaven. It is the consummation of all things, our souls enraptured and wedded to divine love. These sublime ideas, which are beautiful beyond words, should remind us that the Mass is never just reduced to a fellowship meal as if we were coming to a potluck. No, the bridegroom reality touches each and every one of us who belong to the mystical body of Christ the Church, not to mention the implications it has for Christian marriage in which Husbands and wives are to be living icons of Christ and the church. I started off saying that Cana is the only wedding in the New Testament, but you probably noticed by now that's not entirely true. In the book of Revelation, the divine love story comes full circle at the end of salvation history. Just as the Bible begins with the wedding of Adam and Eve, it ends with the wedding of Jesus the bridegroom and the church his bride. Remember how I said we have to know the story of salvation history? Well, now I say it's not just enough to know the story as history, as his story. We also have to know this as my story. That I have a part. Where do I fit in this story? Jesus wants to be the bridegroom of my soul. He's waiting for each one of us with all our sinful and broken past, desiring that we enter into this great mystery of his love for the church and experience it as a personal encounter, a nuptial intimacy he has of love for my soul wanting to unite it with the living God. Our entire life is marked by Jesus' spousal love, the reality that Jesus wants to be the bridegroom of my soul. He wants to give himself to me in my brokenness. He wants to wash me of my sins. He wants to feed me and satisfy my famished longings. He desires to talk with me in intimacy to be with me when I'm alone. And when the wedding supper of the Lamb finally comes, the eternal marriage of God and his people in eternity, he wants me at last to be able to see his face, the face of the divine bridegroom. Amen.